Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Kevin Appel was born, lives, and works in Los Angeles. He received his BFA from Parsons School of Design in New York in 1990 and his MFA from the University of California, Los Angeles in 1995. Kevin has had numerous solo exhibitions both nationally and internationally, which include Miles McHenry Gallery in New York City, Christopher Grimes Gallery in Santa Monica, Acme in Los Angeles, Marion Boski Gallery in New York, Wilkinson Gallery in London, England, and Angles Gallery in Santa Monica, amongst others. His recent group exhibitions include Endless House, Intersections of Art and Architecture at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, Black and White at La Montagna Gallery in Boston, Massachusetts, California Modern at Orange County Museum of Art in Newport, California, and Drawing Now Eight Propositions at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, amongst many others. Kevin's work may be found in the permanent collections of the Museum of Modern Art in New York, the Los Angeles County Museum of Art in Los Angeles, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles, the Portland Art Museum in Portland, Oregon, the Minneapolis Institute of Art in Minneapolis, the New York Public Library in New York, the Walker Art Center, the Rhode Island School of Design, the Misumi Corporation in Tokyo, Japan, the Fogg Museum at Harvard University, and the Saatchi Collection in London, England. Kevin was in town for his installation of works at the ADAA Art Show up through March 3rd with the Miles McHenry Gallery, and he stopped by my apartment in Brooklyn and we chatted about painting, jazz, architecture, and a lot more. Here's our conversation. Ever since I became aware of your work, mm-hmm. you know, that you were based in Los Angeles, but, you know, looking at your bio, you're born and raised in Los Angeles. I am. How did yeah. that happen? <laughs> How did that happen? Well, my father was born there as well, so mm-hmm. my grandfather was the first to come to L.A., and, um, yeah, so I, I grew up there. I grew up in and around kind of architecture world, because my dad's an architect, and my uncle's a builder. My mom's an interior decorator. Um, so, it, it some of that initial work came kind of naturally to me. Mm-hmm. But um, so I, you know, I was raised in L.A. I did some time in San Francisco twice, two different periods, and then I lived in New York. I did the second half of my undergrad in New York at Parsons. Yeah. You know, back then Otis and Parsons were affiliated. Mm-hmm. Um, so actually Otis was in receivership and Parsons, they bought Parsons names for a few years to try to pull their reputation out of the dumpster. And, <laughs> but the beauty of that is that people could transfer back and forth. And I did that. So I was here for a few years. So it was one school experience. It was just, you were able to move to New York. For yeah. Half of it. Yeah. And that was at the tail end of the eighties. And I was at the time I was really enamored with. A lot of the big painters, you know, David Sally, and yeah. um, that whole scene had sort of interested me from California and their relationship to CalArts. And um, so I wanted to come see it in person. And, and also, back then, LA didn't have any galleries to speak of, a few. And so coming out here and just being in the thick of it at that time, of course, it was in Soho and just being able to walk around and see everything and also go to the museums, you know, the collections in L.A. are decent, but of course, it's nothing like here. Right. So I'm sitting in my studio and I'm thinking about a Barnett Newman and I just go up and see it. Right. And I wanted that experience. But, you know, L.A. has a strong history of artists and group of artists that were there. Yeah. Was there a feeling, though, that you know, you need to go to New York or it's, there's a, I wasn't at the time I wasn't thinking professionally at all. If that's sort of what you mean, I wasn't, it wasn't like I felt like I had to go to New York because that's where the scene is. Yeah. And I wasn't expecting, you know, I was just deep in my practice back then. I wasn't expecting to make a living or anything like that. What were you making? I was making these kinds of loose, uh, maybe maybe you could explain them as kind of biomorphic abstraction, but they had a lot of Bacabian in them too, a lot of line and solids together. 
And I was pulling from a lot of different source material, some of it architectural, um, but all of these things were sort of floating in more of a flatbed picture plane and mm -hmm. not, they weren't spatially clear. Um, they were very painterly, they were very emotional, they were very sort of in it, you yeah. know, up to my elbows and paint. And, uh, and I wasn't, I was an undergrad, you know, I wasn't very critical at the time. And, and um, that was okay. That it was, was like finding the material. Finding the material, yeah. exactly. And I started painting really young. Um, I probably picked up a brush, besides the usual childhood stuff, I probably picked up oil paint when I was 13, mm -hmm. and by the time I was 16 to 18, I guess, I started to consider it as something I was actually gonna do and started to take it really seriously and started to look at stuff. Um, although, you know, being raised by people who were art um, savvy, we that was some of our weekend, a lot of our weekend trips were going to museums and going around LA and seeing architecture. Mm -hmm. You know, my dad would take us and see, just even just driving by um, John Lautner houses and yeah. Eames houses and things like that. I mean, he was fully enamored with all of that. And was, so, he, was he designing his own buildings? He was, was. he, he had farm? his own firm. Yeah. Um, so I think early on he did more residential work, which I think he liked, uh, well, I know he liked more because yeah. it had more freedom and more of a relationship to things that he was really interested in, like international style architecture. Yeah. Um, but as he moved along, his business needed to, um, in order to you know, stay afloat and move forward, he got more into <clears throat> sort of hospitals and um, more commercial work. And that's, that's limiting, you know, and there's a lot of rules in the hospitals, but in some ways that you know, it's interesting. It has a relationship to sort of painting and things like that, too. You know, yeah, trying definitely. to find freedom within limits. Right. Um, but he he actually wanted to be a painter. And so there was a lot of <clears throat> support when I made that decision. Mm -hmm. so, well, that's nice. Was your was nice. Was your grandfather creative? My, he was a builder, businessman. That's what brought him to L.A.? Or? Yeah. So he, my grandfather, um, his parents were born in Poland mm -hmm. and ended up emigrating to London. And it's like typical Jewish story, Ashkenazi. And uh, <clears throat> my great-grandfather was a tailor. Mm -hmm. And they came, I think, when my grandfather was 11. And they landed in New York, quickly moved to Ohio, and then started moving across the country towards Los Angeles. I don't know if that's where... I don't know if it was a goal, but they started moving. And then in <clears throat> when they got to, I think it was El Paso, Texas, my great-grandfather gave my grandfather whatever money he had to build a house. And so he built a house and flipped it. That made him some money. And then he got to L.A., and that was his, that was his thing. He was, uh, he was a developer, essentially. And he, he sort of had an almost, uh, like, it's a wonderful life uh, company. Mm -hmm. So it was, like a, it was like a building and loan. <clears throat> so he would loan out the money and then also build the structures. And, um, interesting. Are any of those still up? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. A lot of them around L.A. I mean, he, he helped sort of build that place up back yeah. then. And, um, interesting. He was quite the patriarch, you know. Um, and he had a lot of brothers. My, uh, my father had two siblings. Um, and then, you know, so he, I think my father segueing into architecture made a lot of sense too, you know. Yeah. And his brother became a developer. I mean, it's just sort of stayed in the family. Um, then you figured, well, I'm going to make something to put in these spaces. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a little bit. I, yeah, I considered design and architecture, when, especially when I was early in undergraduate at Otis. Mm -hmm. Um, I had this teacher named Katie Phillips who was uh, very influential on me and she sort of wonderfully and very directly told me I'm a painter and I would be dumb not to follow that. 
it's kind of great, you know, yeah. to, for a teacher to just do that. You know, I'm hemming and hawing and thinking of this and worrying, you know, like we were talking about a little earlier about, you know, money and all these mm -hmm. kinds of things. And, <clears throat> but that was my true love, and she knew it, and she saw this kind of um, invested ability, and she just said, go for it, and I did. And then sometimes that's all you need, is that one confident person to say, yeah. no, no, you should do this. Yeah. And it, it gives you license to be like, okay. It was a total catalyst, yeah. yeah. And then, you know, all of my other classes fell by the wayside. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I wasn't doing so well in the design and all of that, and then I became, I took on the fine arts major, and was just in the painting studio 24 hours a day in college but what about high school like what were you just well kind of just generally studying everything mm -hmm. were you leaning towards art at that point i, I guess was leaning towards art because in the household it's a creative house architecture yeah you know i was leaning toward it i did well in <clears throat> we had <clears throat> i went to a school where english was english communications and so there was a there's a really famous teacher there uh his name was Jim Hosney, and he sort of introduced us to this interdisciplinary way of thinking about humanities, right? So we would watch films, so watch Apocalypse Now, read Heart of Darkness at the same time, talk about school? it. Yeah, high yeah. school, listen to The Clash, Sandinista, when we're talking about more sort of political things yeah. in, in literature, and this was amazing. Um, so it, it, it sort of got me to understand the cross-disciplinary nature of creative work right but uh i dropped out of high school and, oh really yeah so i moved up that was one of the times i lived in san francisco i was uh chasing romance <laughs> well dad must not have been happy about that right well that's an interesting story actually he so i had a conversation with him i remember we were sitting on the couch in in the house and i had packed up my car the night before and he you know i was all of 16 thinking that I knew everything I needed to know and telling him I was going to go and it was a back and forth yes you are no you're not uh, or yes I am no you're not and my dad had this thing back then where if he got really stressed out he would just fall asleep <laughs> <laughs> so he fell asleep and I got in my car and drove up to San Francisco and when I got there he had beat me he took a plane oh really yeah you there yeah and oh so goodness. we talked about it for several days, and he realized that I was uh, serious. And yeah. that's, he sort of left me with a half blessing. And I stayed there for a few years and then decided I wanted to go to college. And mm -hmm. I came back and did whatever requirements I had to do to, to get back in the swing of things. And Interestingly, I started undergrad around the same time I would have anyway, I think, maybe a year's difference or something. Yeah. So, but it was a good experience, and, you know, I'm a bit of a romantic, so I was following my heart or well, lines San or something. San Francisco is <laughs> yeah. such a great place to kind of flee to, in a way, you know, oh, yeah. when you're young. I remember taking uh, road trips across the country with friends. It was like in between high school and college, just to go to City Lights bookstore and, yeah. you know, just going out there and the coffee shops and <clears throat> just felt right. We're just reading all those books, you know, all the beat stuff. And right. It's kind of perfect for that age when you're in a kind of existential limbo and you're, and so much of that writing and that environment was about that. Yeah. Um, the kind of the self and the politics associated with that and this kind of uh, coming out as your own individual and um, so yeah it made a lot of sense for me at the time and uh, it felt I moved back there after undergrad and that time felt really different because I had been exposed to a lot <clears throat> and it felt politically insular mm -hmm. you know in, from the liberal perspective, right. right? It's like everybody's on the same page, and there's something about that that doesn't feel like there's enough conflict for an artist. And yeah. maybe that's why there's not such a strong art scene there. But um, <clears throat> So I left there to go to UCLA. And you feel like there you could get some pushback. It's true, though, right? You kind yeah. of need an environment that you have to push back against in a way. You do, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And 
Yeah, I felt that way more at UCLA. When I was there, um, it was a little less career oriented. Mm -hmm. I went there, when I graduated, it was the year after that the Spin Magazine article came out. Yeah, you um, guys created the... Dennis Cooper, right, wrote that article. And then Wait, isn't Dennis us... Cooper, wasn't he, like, he wrote on, like, Nirvana and music stuff, didn't Oh, yeah, he? totally. So yeah, what was that like? Did he magazine. come interview you guys? And... Well, that was after I left. Oh, so, I see. Uh, I wasn't really associated with that, but I guess because of myself and others... Um, our class graduated, and there were quite a few people that sort of hit the ground running. Yeah. And attention focused on UCLA at that point. I think their applications at that point went through the roof yeah. after Spin Magazine. And What year was that? Oh, was God. it 99, 98? That makes sense. I graduated in 95, so the article was a few years after that. Yeah, because yeah, I remember reading that, you mm -hmm. know, and it being a big thing. Right. You know, it felt like at that time, too, is it's not to say that graduate school wasn't already uh, a big thing in the art world, but I feel like that was the explosion of graduate school in general. And yeah. now, as you know, students feel like they have to do it. Um, right. Which, that article kind of made it cool to do it. It did. Because no one was really talking about grad school programs and art. Right, right. And then here he comes with the spin <laughs> article. <laughs> yeah. The problem with that is that I think that at that point, this UCLA in particular is still a great program, don't get me wrong, but um, it's very professionalized, and the students have a kind of expectation, in my view, in the times I've gone back to visit, that this is, uh, it just has this sort of career orientation, and when they have their open studios, you know, dealers come. Yeah. And one of the things I like about teaching at UCI is, you know, it's a, it's at the highest levels of criticality. It has a big, it has a healthy skepticism for the profession. Although, from my perspective and a few others, you need to understand it and embrace it to a certain degree. You don't want to sort of turn your back and, and have this purely academic experience and have the students just get blindsided when they get out. But it's far enough away from LA that <clears throat> students can work a little bit more privately. Yeah, you know, not you're not going to be standing in your studio during a review and all of a sudden have, I don't know, Kordansky walk in or something, right. and it's just, that is such a different animal. Yeah. You need to be able to fuck up. Yeah, you know, definitely. Take yeah, risks. being out, I, I always say that I don't, I can't imagine going to school in New York City uh -huh. for art because I, I would be so distracted all the time. Where did you go again? I went to Penn State for undergrad oh, right. and then Yale for graduate school. Okay. But, and even though when in grad school you felt like a connection to what was going on because a lot of the professors and visiting art, you, you know, they brought in great people. Of course. But you're far enough, especially then, this is pre-internet, internet, mm. you know, mm -hmm. you're far enough to feel like as soon as you're done, you want to run down to New York, mm -hmm. you know, because you've been separated from it. Right. And I feel like if you go to school in the city, I mean, it's different now, too, because the way information is disseminated so mm -hmm. easily. But um, I think even back then, I would just be going out to galleries or openings or to museums or to, mm -hmm. honestly, more music shows and, you know, right, yeah. doing the scene instead of being in the studio, I guess. But um, sometimes boredom creates, you know, good creative yeah, energy. Exactly. And if you're, if you're busy all the time, you, that drive becomes less, maybe. But um, I was so myopic yeah. back then. Um, the studio was just it. 24 hours a day. There were probably, at UCLA, if you set aside the, um, the more sort of project-based artists, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, maybe have a little bit more of a so-called post-studio identity anyway, so they weren't around as much, but there were probably three or four of us that were in there all the time. Yeah. And we had, the studios had, um, you know, the walls didn't go all the way to the ceiling. Right. So you just kind of call out and say, Kurt, are you still here? Yeah. <laughs> and just still working until the dead of night, you yeah. know, and then just roll out of there, sleep for a little bit, and then start all over again. And then that habit sort of continued with me out of graduate school, too, when, when I had to work uh, and try to paint at the same time. It was all about working from, I don't know, 8 o'clock after work and then working till one, two in the morning and then doing it all over again.
What did you do it's when you first started young. getting out? What was your day job? I was in graphic design. Mm-hmm. So I worked for, I, I don't even know if, it's not a firm, it's a person. It was just the two of us, and she did a lot of sort of mainstream music stuff, mm-hmm. uh, some album covers, some, and then a lot of advertisements that just sort of go alongside with tours and concerts and stuff like that. So <clears throat> since it was for something like that, the timing was very intense. So yeah, it was longer hours than I would have liked and a lot of deadlines. And, you know, working creatively can be a little bit of a drain. Right. Um, however, I didn't want to work in the art world. I didn't want to schlep paintings or be somebody's studio assistant. Or right. There's just something in my mind that I wanted to kind of separate my income from art at that point. Yeah, I think it depends on the person as far mm-hmm. as that's concerned. Some mm-hmm. people like making those connections, right? but other people, you know, it, it kind of kills it for them. In a way. Yeah, I, I, actually, yeah, I've had some students that have gotten out and worked for galleries and they've seen some of the ugly underbelly of all of this and they just, it just, really, <laughs> it just really turned them off, yeah. you know, yeah. this sort of bottom line conversations that have to happen in that context and yeah yeah I don't think I knowing what I know now and going through the whole process of you know being an artist and doing this for a long time I don't think I'd ever want to work in a gallery mm-hmm. because I it would totally change the vibe of that's that space because yeah. Yeah. there is a you know nuts and bolts part of it that you can't escape and right it's there but sometimes you just don't want to see it yeah but we need to separate ourselves from that to a certain degree yeah. you need to keep some some insularity in the studio you need to keep some romance alive right. you yeah. know that there's some belief that has to be in there in order for work to have energy and, and sort of a soul and life and um yeah you can't have that you get that sucked out enough just being involved at all you right. know you, but you don't want to be on the ground level all the time it's like going to fairs you know yeah you try to avoid them as much as possible because it's just the kind of the ugliest side of how this whole thing works. Yeah, it takes out some of that magic. Yeah. You want to believe in that magic. Yeah. And especially these days when, you know, everything's on view. You yeah. Know, you get the video. Like, there's nothing. Right. There's none of that hidden magic anymore. Yeah. And it's interesting because that, you know, going back to what I was saying about <clears throat> having grown up in museums and things like that. You know, that was sort of my church, you know, and the hushed quality of it and this almost kind of pious belief that seems to be running through these periods of art history and all the galleries in a museum and really stuck with me. And it's been that way ever since, you know, and I understand there's there's healthy dollops of so-called institutional critique that... um, comes into your life as you move through into later periods of looking at work but that sensibility is still sort of what fuels me more than anything else yeah that belief is so important or not important but I don't know I have it and Uh I think you know as as a working artist you I, I feel like there's this conflict where part of your being or part of the voices that have been around what you do your in your lifetime is mm-hmm. you know, like what you're doing is so non-essential and it's just mm. you're just making pictures or whatever and, right you know <laughs> with the, which isn't probably that different than religion and believing in something that's not <laughs> might not really be there but right. the, but what I always come back to is there is a reality of the fact that you're spending all this time doing it mm-hmm. and for me that's where the belief really lies you know it's Right. Whether at the end of the day, yeah, it's just a painting or a sculpture, it's just a picture or mm-hmm. a video, and but you know you can't take away from it the time and the sort of belief that was made or you know given to that image. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's what's always that's the magic. You know, right. you can't ever divorce the magic from that. I think. Right. Yeah, it has a certain a certain energy when you're looking at the work and this a certain humanism that's attached to it no matter how dehumanized the work itself might be yeah. or the context might be or the the idea behind it it's still in there and there's a certain connectivity that happens at that level and i think that's um 
that's one of the things that gets me out and looking at things and still the kind of stuff that really gets me going. So Yeah, and it's funny because I feel like the older I get, um, I become more of a, a fan of everything. Mm-hmm. I, I've kind of become much more of because, you know, when you're younger, you're like, man, that sucks. That kind of painting <laughs> or that artist is yeah. like lame or whatever. You know, you're more, or at least for me, I was more critical. Mm-hmm. I think that happens like with music too. When you're younger, you have like very specific tastes. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, I only listen to this, the other stuff's crap or whatever. And as right. you get older, you kind of see the value in more things. Sure. They're sure. outside of your own. Yeah. But the only time I find myself, and I still try to fight it, um, kind of thinking like, oh, this artist, I just can't get into it or something, is when I feel that there's no belief in it or that it's mm-hmm. made. And how do I know? But where I feel like it's made tongue and cheek, or they don't really care. It's yeah. like I don't buy it at all. Yeah. You know, it just feels like. They're just doing this thing, yeah. and they don't really believe in it. Yeah, I get a little exhausted by sarcasm, too, and the, a kind of position that makes it seem as if the... You know, it's almost walking a kind of tightrope. Mm-hmm. Like, if you as the viewer take it too seriously, then the joke's on you. Um, right. But, you know what I mean? And it, it's, it has this kind of escape patch quality to it that... Yeah. You can take it seriously, and that would be great for the artist. But you know, if you take it too seriously in a critical way, then the joke is on you. Um, I don't. I just don't respond to that. I mean, it's fine. People do what they do, but it's it's not where I find my interest. Yeah, that's why some of the best work is a very serious, rigid practice of humorous art. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Right. Yeah. Right, Bruce Nauman or yeah. somebody like that. Bruce yeah, Nauman, sure. Shrigley yeah. is really right. great. Yeah, you know, Maurizio Cowan, like people like that who inject humor. I, yeah, I kind of respect John that. Wesley. Yeah, John Wesley. Oh my god, I love that word. It's such a great balance of like <laughs> weirdness, humor. Yeah, you know, but but obviously a belief in that too. You know. Yeah, and such a <clears throat> sort of like you were saying a kind of rigorous system. Yeah, I mean, down to just the colors that he used, but. It's interesting that you don't get bored with the work, and maybe that is that kind of personal investment that we were talking about before. Right. You know, even though there's all of this repetition, and you don't walk in and all of a sudden see red paintings of his mm-hmm. or whatever, you still, I, for myself anyway, I still just get floored by it every time. Well, I think part and, of that too is because it's so weird. It is so weird. No one paints like that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, no one's doing that kind of stuff. Like I if know. it were run of the mill or like kind of, you know you've seen it before, I yeah. think you would get tired of it quicker. Yeah. But it's so different that, yeah. you know, it's a, it's almost like that guy's a national treasure. Right. Yeah. And it's just, it's, you know, lascivious and sexual. And, yeah. You know, it's, it's creepy, putting, put, creepy, putting all that sort of out there. And <clears throat> I feel like you got to, I get increasingly interested in those kinds of positions because they are, um, I don't want to say they're not political, but they're not, frightened of the difficulty in the politics and of course he's older so yeah it comes from a different period of that kind of thinking but um and i, I feel like we've become so constrained by our concerns and worries about offend offending and all yeah. of these kinds of things i mean of course it's got its important elements as well of course a kind of leveling but um i do get excited when there's a kind of misfit quality in in work yeah I know, but are we ever going to see someone making a painting of an old guy in his underwear chasing a duck? <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't think that we could get away, like a younger artist could really get away with that. Yeah, not, not right now. Yeah. I think there's going to be a kind of a swing where things level out a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm finding it with my students, too, that sort of taking risks of that kind. Then we have these conversations before they're having a show or something like that that they have to do. And, you know, there's all these nerves. Or we're in these critiques and the, the air in the critique is very uh, thin. It's very airless because yeah. everybody's concerned about stepping on somebody else's toes in terms of so-called positionality. And, you know, I'll say again, I, I, I think these things are really important, but I think we also need to keep in mind that um, bucking those kinds of systems is kind of what art does best. Right. And 
to to allow those kinds of things to happen you know yeah and is art losing its voice or a percentage of its voice by always having to right be careful about well that it stuff. becomes another form of conservatism yeah right? I mean, yeah that's essentially sort of what happens isn't that and, ironic yeah it is ironic and I mean, I, I'm the first to admit I come from a privileged position and even talking about things this way. And I understand the, the way that this, you know, like I said, the importance. Um, uh, but I'm also looking forward to when there's kind of more of a leveling out and my students can relax and we can have some sort of difficult conversations um, from a more open perspective. Um, yeah. And not sort of, uh, you know tisk-tisking everybody for not thinking of one or other things that they sh should have been in their minds when they were making something. Yeah, well, sometimes when there's no rules and everyone's in there, you know, burning the house down, partying like crazy, you got to kick everyone out. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Put those right. rules in and, like, slowly work your way back in. And right. I think we're, you know, a lot of that um, constricting that's going on as a result of a long period of, you know, getting away with a lot of stuff that shouldn't have been said, yeah, shouldn't absolutely. have been done, and a lot of privilege yeah. that shouldn't have been had. Mm -hmm. So it's it's kind of like you want you you really hope that it gets back to that nice balance mm -hmm. of of respect of of kind of like being able to push things, but knowing when it's appropriate and when mm -hmm. it's not. You know, it's a very interesting time. I mean, it's it kind is of amazing, and it's, it's it's a real like I think if you would have gone back ten years and thought about what the advent of all this kind of you know, public face of information, what it's going to do, I don't think that would have been one of the main kind of, like, things you would think about. No, but it's interesting God, no. how that... And, you know, like, we both have kids. You think about how their their life is going to be altered by, you know, constantly being under the, the lens, you know, the spotlight. And that's, My daughters are extremely political already. Oh, yeah? Yeah. And they're very identity conscious and... Um, talking about that kind of stuff all the time yeah and it's very interesting to see how you know of course we live in los angeles and they were born to a you know open family mm -hmm. and we've had these kinds of conversations all along but they've really taken to it and my older daughter is uh she's a poet and she's a slam poet and she's out there on stage with her friends just ripping apart uh, you know, current politics, and it's pretty great. Yeah, that's amazing. Pretty amazing. But, but the the three of us, you know, we'll sit in the kitchen and talk about politics till you know the middle of the night. Yeah, they just they really get into it. It's great. When how old are they? Fifteen and thirteen. Yeah. Yeah. We don't go heavy on the politics yet, <laughs> but I guess I got a couple of years. I mean, we all yeah. talk about some things, but. I don't know, a lot of times it's just so depressing that I try oh, I to, like, change the subject to music or to something, mm -hmm. you know, a little more uplifting. Yeah. That's the thing I worry about with kids is, like, the anxiety levels oh, of yeah. all this information and all this worry, you know? Mm -hmm. And I guess if there's something about growing up in a, you know, in an unconnected way, it's, it's you can almost feel like, oh, there's nothing to worry about, I just mm -hmm. do my thing, you know? Yeah, it's, My, it's changed. we sent our kids to Waldorf school, mm -hmm. and that has a no media policy, at least early on. There's a certain point, you know, as an urban, modern individual, that, impossible. that it's impossible. <laughs> but in the beginning, it was that way. So the whole philosophy of that is just to kind of keep your kid a kid as long as possible. Yeah. Um, but they they fell into that kind of thinking right away, and I you know I realized that there were always newspapers around the house, and um, you know listening to the radio all the time, NPR, and so they it they were infused with it from from the culture they grew up in. Yeah. Um, but you know having these kind of aware individuals is amazing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So when you were. Um not to change the subject too drastically, no, but please. when you were making um, your early paintings mm -hmm. and thinking about architecture and kind mm -hmm. of aesthetics of spaces and all that stuff, right. and you kind of, that's when you first really were showing the work. Mm -hmm. Was it Angles? Was that the first? Angles, yes. Mary Bosky here yes. in New York? That's right. So, so, so when you were showing that work and getting a lot of, you know, 
eyes on that work and attention. I remember seeing that work, being really interested in it, and then it, all of a sudden it seemed like it kind of exploded into these, you know, broken shapes and broken spaces, outdoor, indoor, and it, mm-hmm. it kind of, it made me think of like, you know that game Katamari Damasi? It's, a, it's like a video game where it's a little guy just rolls up stuff into balls and it's like trees and household items and the ball gets bigger and bigger and you're trying to make it big enough to create a star in the universe. No, that's it's an amazing, amazing game. Yeah, it's an amazing <laughs> game. But those paintings reminded me a little bit of it. The ones that yeah. are kind of like, they feel like almost like balled up, right. you know, pieces of, of the environment, mm-hmm. you know. How was like the change, you know, from doing that more reductive kind of like, you know, there was a little bit, I'm sure, of a connection between digital media and, and kind of clean lines and spaces or architectural rendering and things like that to kind of like loosening it up in the sense that like things were converging. Was it just organic process or was it kind of like you felt like, I'm going to shift now, I need to shift this space? I think that in general I'm restless. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the work from that period, ninety five onward um it changes a lot and there's a few major jumps and i think there's a certain point where i feel like i've gotten everything i can get out of a certain way of thinking and uh, that's when i usually jump ship but it's not it's not conscious it's just like i said it's just a restlessness or kind of something has to change and most of what i do comes from uh kind of I guess what it comes from a kind of visual inspiration first mm-hmm. I have an image in my head and then I try to pick that apart and I, I'm not a research heavy person but I do enough um, sort of conversing and reading around a subject to give myself an, an internal confidence to move forward it's not about explicating any of those ideas, really. It's about getting them forward in a, a more uh, associative and um, kind of obtuse way. I want people to have to just respond. Um, and I also don't want to feel constrained in the way that I work. And so, so, yeah, so that was a... I was working on those kind of modernist interiors, which were somewhere between international style architecture and um, uh, kind of Japanese palaces like Katsura Palace or something like mm-hmm. that and and they sort of got tighter and airless and then they kind of exploded and turned inside out so I moved from those kind of rarefied spaces the kind of modernist spaces to these kind of salt box houses for a little while cabins almost and kind of out thinking about kind of outliers and Thoreau and maybe the Unabomber or something like that and then and then those houses got turned inside out and so all of the kind of more messy um, interior environments got pulled to the outside and that's that kind of explosive thing that you were talking about and because it just got kind of more domestically messy too you know uh, places where people live and patterns and furniture and there was even like scatological references in those and it was sort of went from the clean to the to the dirty albeit you know my version of that right. because I'm not a I'm I always have a certain kind of <clears throat> um, cleanliness to the way that I work but and then it got increasingly abstract for lack of a better term and, and well, when you were when you were <clears throat> breaking those spaces down were you doing that via kind of like drawing or collage or a little bit of a computer I was you know so at a certain point the surprisingly the large interiors from around 99 um, were mapped out only barely uh, on the computer I've never really had that much of an understanding of those programs um and then those were done really with two-point perspective and drawings and then but then when these things started turning into these more tumbling houses and piles and things like that uh, the the perspective got too complicated right and so the computer came in very handy but 
the way that it worked is I usually just sort of suss things out in a very simple wireframe in the computer. Mm -hmm. And then I projected that onto large sheets of paper and worked with charcoal, just sort of hands-on, and then got that onto the canvas. And, it, you know, there's a, there's a little bit more sort of real-time decision-making in that work than the work lets on. Mm -hmm. um, but it was also a lot more planned um, than the way that I work now because all of the overlaps in that work are implied. They're not actually there. Yeah. So it means that space has to be left for different elements to be put in. And right. you, you don't do that in as much of an ad hoc way. It's funny because that early work maybe has more of a digital look to it, uh -huh. but it seems like that was less yeah. in the preparation. It's just yeah. so deceiving. Like right. people, what people think about you know, how the work, like the relationship of the aesthetic and what that means to the way it's made. Right. Which is totally... But in your work, I don't know if people who aren't painters are thinking about it that much or if they, if they look at an overview of work and see these kind of like shifts that happen at a certain point to where you're breaking something down or changing the process or whatever. Mm -hmm. To me, it's always physically looked similar in the sense that anyone who does collage or collages spaces together mm -hmm. understands that there's an architectural way like approach to building an image you know mm -hmm. what I mean and it feels like your work always has that whereas maybe in the beginning it was um, a little more evident representationally that there was an architectural connection there the work now seems architectural in the sense of the way that you're building the spaces well yeah back then too I it's interesting how things of course get interpreted publicly and I uh, first of all, I got pigeonholed a little too strongly into Los Angeles mm -hmm. as a subject, which was actually not all of that interest, not all that interesting to me. Um, and then also this sort of digital framework for for the work got talked about, and I got you know curated into some shows that were all about digital yeah. work. And but that wasn't you know I was thinking of these things more in line with Helio Oiticica or right. even Agnes Martin or something like um, these kind of ethereal monochromes hanging in space um, so I didn't you know people need to pare things down right, they right. need a, sand, a sound bite to be able to understand things and I, I was looking for something a little bit more complicated in relationship to modernist painting and um, so but now, yeah, the, the way that you're mentioning that, um, I think now the architecture is getting further and further in the rear view mirror, but like you say, uh, the way of looking at it, this kind of interior, exterior space, and when are you looking through something at something else, and these sort of grids and screens, and um, it, I think comes directly out of looking at a lot of those kinds of things. but. Again, it comes from a more intuitive space. I, you know, a couple, I think it was one time when I was giving a lecture, maybe it was at USC, and I went through from, say, 95 all the way forward, um, and somebody pointed out that it's like a narrative, and I never, that was not intended, but it was like these houses, and then the houses kind of turned into these taut, sort of tumbling, uh, more sort of domestic homes and then those domestic homes exploded and more piles on the bottom of the canvas and um, and then started building themselves up in sort of constituent parts pulled from those piles and it kind of made absolutely perfect sense and I'm sure that somewhere um, in my mind that's was the trajectory that was intended um, but it certainly wasn't a master plan it wasn't mapped out no it wasn't mapped out well that's the idea like if you're really thinking about your work and you're thinking about changing things mm -hmm. then there is going to be some sort of progression that that you wouldn't know from the beginning yeah. and that's the beauty of working visually is that there's no real answers there's right. only exploration and that gets you answers within the work but it's right. never solved you know? yes well one would hope well, right right that's why retrospectives are great because <laughs> usually because you can see someone thinking over yeah. the course of like you know decades yeah and, um, you know, and thinking about the L.A. thing, it's, it's like that just happened or the digital thing. It's like if people are curating shows when, you know, the, the computer is becoming a little more prevalent and the 
preparatory work stages or the final stages of making artwork uh-huh. and then okay well who has that look you right. know Al Held probably looks more digital than anyone else yeah. and I don't think he really used the com- or if he did use the computer it wasn't not early on there's yeah, no way I mean, not to the level like, of a lot of other artists who yeah. are making very organic things use yeah. the computer so right. it's just kind of like where you know you you fit it and since people do it's, it's comforting to know that the shortest tension span mm-hmm. was existed before the advent of social media because <laughs> because even back then it's like you know you people want to define an artist by a certain look and it's like oh this is work kind of about that and yeah. they just leave it at that right. you know what I mean and even when I was in graduate school I was getting shit because people were saying like oh you're just trying to look like LA artists oh yeah because that's when that article came out and it was big uh-huh. and I don't think I had a studio visit where someone wasn't talking about sure. Los Angeles right which, in that point, I was doing these fractalized kind of like architectural spaces that were built on fractal framework drawings, uh-huh. you know? and, but the palette was kind of my palette, and it was kind of like clean, and, you know, but I was more interested in like Warner Brothers cartoons than anything mm-hmm. else, but it, it resonated with what was going on, and, sure. you know, Laura Owens, or whatever, whoever the other, you know, the, yeah. the group of... Of, uh, remember Chris Finley's work back Chris then. Chris Finley. People yeah. were like, oh, you know, you're probably looking at that stuff and trying to do a version of it. Yeah. It wasn't really. No, not really. I mean, it doesn't always work that way. I remember seeing when your work came out, too, and feeling an affiliation with it, though. Mm-hmm. Um, not saying, like, oh, that's L.A. work, but feeling like there was some kinship in, in some of the things that we were both thinking about at that time. Well, architecture, we were constructing definitely. work. Yeah. And I was really interested in the architecture and building urban spaces. Right. You know, I read this this book. I forget the title of it, but it was kind of about how the shapes of the spaces that, you know, like urban planning or or, mm-hmm. or even in rural settings, like how those, those spaces define the way humans interact. Right. Like what it says about people right. in society. And, One of my favorite books along those lines, and I don't know if maybe this is, but Gaston Bachelard's Poetics of Space oh, was yeah, big yeah. for me in that yeah. period. and. I mean, that book is, um, for all of the things that I read around architecture, um, like John, Jonathan Rackman, who wrote Constructions, which actually I feel is one of the best books on abstract painting you could find, even though it's about architecture, um, was hugely influential, but more theoretical. And the thing that I loved about Bachelard is it's just emotional. It's yeah. psychological and emotional. I mean, it just, the way that it approaches um, domestic space and memory is just beautiful yeah. and so that stuff was probably on my mind a lot when the shift went from these sort of much more cool detached spaces to something that addressed a kind of human psychology and the domestic so so yeah those kinds of things were were fueling me similar to what you were thinking about as well um, you know it's funny the changes that come too it's uh I haven't been particularly good at branding myself and that's that's like you wonder you know and and I would have dealers or you know not to I don't want to get too far into profession but um or collectors or whomever who would say oh okay well is this what he's doing now Mm -hmm. you know and of course the answer is yes right now um but I just like I said, I'm restless. I can't. I, I haven't landed on anything that has um, uh, been like, okay, I'm done now. Right. And it's interesting how that works, though. There's a certain mystery involved in that that I don't think I'll ever understand fully, except by way of investment. You know, so which is a totally ineffable thing, too. Yeah. You know, so you'll see one artist sort of land on something and do it over and over again, and you'll feel bored and you'll feel like it's like I said a branding or this kind of repetition and beating a dead horse beating a dead horse (laughs) and then you'll find somebody like you know Agnes Martin or Ellsworth Kelly or somebody that has um, landed somewhere that has a good deal of obvious repetition for lack of a better word but you don't move from one to the next and think oh this person's on autopilot right um John a, Wesley. John Wesley. I mean, that's a really difficult thing to explain, really. But you know it's it. Weird. Yeah, you it's feel weird. it. When you you're can feel. In front of yeah, it. you can feel when someone's just like, "Oh, you're gonna do that again, right. and again, and again." Right. But some people don't in their work 
some people don't make big shifts. They right. make a series of, you know, minuscule shifts over a long periods of time. Right. But at the end of the day, my belief is they're in that studio. They got to live with it. Yeah. You know, like each artist has to, if you are beating a dead horse, mm-hmm. that's got to suck because you're probably <laughs> bored. Yeah. You know what I mean? Sure. And then, yeah, okay, you're selling your work or you're showing the work, but mm-hmm. you're probably feeling, you know, kind of like karmically <laughs> devoid yeah. of, of, you know, pushing or doing anything, you know. Yeah, but it's difficult to say. I think it's it's an individual thing. You know, you have your Miles Davises, and then you have your, like, you know, well, who would be a good, you know, like Dave Brubeck. Dave Brubeck, right, right. You know? Right. So, not the Dave Brubeck. You mean Miles Davis jumping from thing to thing? Oh, yeah, just opening new door, like, never settling on anything. Right, or you think of, like, a Horace Silver or something like that, which is fantastic, right? You know, but it's more sort of plodding and, and... uh, and comfortable, really, yeah. in a certain uh, framework of, of jazz. So, But then you see other people, like, you know, one of my favorite guitar, well, jazz musicians, or musicians in general, is Grant Green. Oh, yeah. And it, just the tone, the way he played, I love it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he kind of pushed into sort of, like, funk. Right. Like, that kind of thing. But it just, you know, and that stuff's good, but it just felt like he was following you know, the post-bop and then into the funk mm-hmm. fusion stuff, but in a very polite way, mm-hmm. which it would almost be better if he just stuck to his gun, <laughs> you know what I mean? As opposed right. to someone like Herbie, who was really pushing sure. every change, and like, you know, technology came in, and he was like, yeah, I'm going to make stuff with this, yeah. and it fueled his, you know, creativity. Yeah. So He was like, on early with scratching. Yeah. For Christ's sake. I know. I mean, Rocket. Remember that song? I do. I was just talking to fifth grade class at my show yesterday about because uh, that album's called Future Shock that mm-hmm. Rocket's on. And oh, right. That video I saw when I was a kid with those mannequin legs. Oh, yeah. And it freaked me out. Yeah. It was such a weird... And I loved it, but I was also scared by it, you know. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he was doing that stuff. I gotta watch that again. It's really creepy. Yeah. Yeah. And there's all sorts of like really cheesy video edits that were, they Mm -hmm. probably at the time were like, man, this is amazing. But (laughs) now it looks almost like, you know, a meme or something. Right. But uh, yeah, he was doing stuff that other people were probably like, well, don't go in that territory. That's, you know, dangerous stuff. You know, I get so, I mean, I'm a, music is a major fuel for me, but. One of the things I like about particularly instrumental music, I guess, is that there is a more associative quality of subject and the lack and, and a willingness to have things rest in a kind of purely abstract form mm-hmm. um, that I get, I get almost jealous of. I don't play music, but I, um, I'm just kind of, it, it doesn't feel constrained by explication in the same way that contemporary art is. And that, that's kind of really beautiful. Yeah, I say it over and over on this podcast that the music's just the more highly evolved creative <laughs> form. I mean, it's so visceral. Right. Like, you can't deny it. It just gets in you. Like, right. literally, the sound waves go into your body. Right. It makes it's, you feel certain ways. Right. There's, there's less of a, you know, because I used to play music, uh-huh. and there's something about a live show, that connection you feel, mm-hmm. that is not any art. Is I love making art. I love you know, looking at art, and it does something really wonderful, but it's totally different. Right. And, you know, it's, it's um, music, although there is the critique of the music and the styles that you're dealing with or whatever, it's just unencumbered by that kind of discourse mm-hmm. that weighs, it doesn't weigh on it like right. it does on artwork. Even film. Yeah. I mean, these are, I find these to be very elevated art forms when they're at their top level of performance. And, um, you know, even film, which has a much deeper uh, critical sort of conversation surrounding it I think you know except if you get into more uh, kind of lack of a better word new music conversations but Mm -hmm. experimental forms but um, you know when it's firing on all cylinders it's emotional and intellectual and poetic and and sort of hits you in the guts and um, you know painting does that for me a lot but I I wonder um how much it does that, I guess, for, for other people who don't actually practice. Um, we'll never know. We'll never know. <laughs> and I, but, but you do see a lot of people in museums standing in front of a Rothko or something like that and obviously having an elevated moment. And that's, uh, 
But those same people, maybe you put them inside, you know, take them to some contemporary gallery now where there's some installation with scattered ladders and banana peels all over the place and they're just not going to feel it. This is bullshit. Either am I, though. <laughs> so, right. Right, right. They're, they're not going to be sold on officially advice. Right, right. right. <laughs> like, where's the art? In right, here? right. Yeah, I mean, I guess anytime you get down the conceptual wormhole and get deep like that, yeah. it's going to be difficult I mean in speaking to a fifth grade class yesterday mm -hmm. I felt like well if there's one thing my work because of the way that I'm interested in making images and mm -hmm. what I'm talking about it can communicate to kids you know but right. I love work that would never you know sure come close to communicating in that same way it's just right it's a little more insular it's a little more kind of like specific to the medium but well be clear it's this is an an educated position and it's it takes knowledge yeah. to understand these things and just in the same way that I can't open the Journal of American Medicine and read some article on some new kidney treatment and just understand it right. art's the same way yeah. you know it's an educated thing and I think one of the beauties of it though is that it can affect you on a purely directly emotional way like you were talking about the fifth graders mm -hmm. Um, but then somebody else comes to your show that has a deeper knowledge of painting and painting history and they get into a different discourse in their mind. But the way that I view those kinds of things is you're affecting both of those constituents, you know, so that's, that's great. Yeah. And I love that actually when you're in institutional shows um, because people go to museums just to go and they don't necessarily go to see Brian Alfred, you know, they just walk in. Yeah. And so somebody might just like the color, um, and then somebody else might come to it with, you know, Derrida's Truth and Painting in their head. And, right. Uh, but both of those experiences are experiences. Yeah, they're so, they're so great. Like, you'll get questions about the work that really kind of, like, motivate you. And, and you, when people ask you those questions, you think, like, yeah, that's what I was... You're getting it. This is what I was thinking about. This is what I was really pushing towards. Mm -hmm. And then you'll get a fifth grader who will say, like, well, why did you paint that? <laughs> equally. And then you're stumped. <laughs> yeah, equally as, you know, enlightening and engaging. And, and mm -hmm. you know, it's just, there's so many, uh, there's two sides of the coin, I guess. Isn't it amazing how far away you get from some of that kind of stuff? Right, yeah. You get so, like you were saying, the wormhole, and yeah. you're way deep in it, and then some somebody asks you, why did you paint that? Yeah, and like, why did you like, paint shit. a tree? Like, that's a great question. <laughs> yeah. I think I came back at something like, well, I thought it looked nice. Right. <laughs> Which, yeah. yeah. It's part of it. Right. Yeah. I so, love listening to Via Selman's talk about her work in that regard, too, because people go sort of really deep yeah. into maybe the spiritual or something like that and but there's a much more sort of pragmatic at least the language surrounding it mm -hmm. um and that's that's refreshing to hear definitely you know i i remember also seeing olivier mose in conversation once at my gallery in la and everybody was sort of trying to make a connection between the vastness of his canvases and the sort of solid colors and the desert because mm -hmm. um, he lives out in tucson and um they're going on and on in the audience and bouncing off one another and he's just kind of sitting there he's such a character and he just you know revealed finally when they let him speak that uh he got married and he followed his wife there and then he stayed and then he likes to ride his choppers his motorcycles so it's a perfect place to ride bikes and there's no connection at all between I mean, it's kind of, a, in that sense, it was a real misstatement because those paintings are not at all about a kind of elevated spirituality. In yeah. fact, they're kind of the opposite, or they are the opposite. So, um, but still, it was, it was interesting. I love that, you know, the, yeah. that sort of conversation getting so heated and then him being like, no, I got married. Well, that's, yeah, <laughs> and that's the beauty of, of art, too, is it's not defined. Like, you know, as, if you write an essay, you're probably going to have a pretty clear idea of what mm -hmm. it's saying. But, you know, you can totally misread a visual and it can really you know enrich you or you bring up all these mem memories that might be something completely different than the next person mm -hmm. or totally the opposite of what the artist intended right but i think that's why you know artists make art instead mm -hmm. of writing essays or whatever it's because they like that openness and sure. that, that it can be you know um i don't want to say misunderstood but there's there's flexibility in how people engage with it 
mm-hmm. which is what gives it value, I think, right. as a medium. Mm-hmm. So you have um, the, the reason you're here, other than to stop by, <laughs> is that you have like a bunch of work up now, right? At mm-hmm. the, uh, yeah, it's at the art show at, the, at ADAA. I went last armory, night. Armory. Yes, right. I went last night for the gala and I enjoyed it. You know, I, I had just, the last one I went to was the LA fair, which is kind of a total fiasco in general. Um, it's just not managed mm-hmm. well. Um, but that's like, for that one, that was difficult for me to see. I wasn't in that one, but I just went to see it. And the, the, the sort of the quality of the work and <clears throat> it just felt off to me. And, um, you know, there wasn't a lot there that I liked. And there was something nice about going to the ADAA and seeing real sort of quality work. And, you know, I'm going to sound very conservative right now, but, you know, there was a lot of Milton Avery's and mm-hmm. um, Joseph Albers. There was one that had this Joseph Cornell area. And um, alongside, alongside some contemporary things, there was a new Linda Benglis in... in uh, installation and um, but it it felt sort of back in that conversation that we were talking about in the beginning of all of this this sort of um, August history yeah. of what it is that we do and it felt good to be somewhat associated with that yeah uh, so yeah I like the installation they did a good job and um, we did a catalog to go with it. And so there's only uh, five paintings up there, but the, this group of work was, I don't know, up around 12 or something like that. So mm-hmm. it was nice to have the catalog to go with, go along with it as a kind of public record of the current body. And people can, if they're interested, can get that through Miles McHenry Gallery. That's right. Correct? Yes. Does he sell those? Yes. He does? Okay. They're very affordable, Oh, I okay. think. All right. I believe. For how night they're really nice. They are nice. That catalog's very nice. Yeah, it's great that he does that, and it's great that he believes in that still. Yeah. Um, you know, seeing, to me, seeing things in books, of course, is it's how I got introduced to everything, but it also seems more, or I will say it is more real visually, and it is more like looking at artwork visually than a computer is. It's and, tactile. It's tactile, and it's not backlit, and it's not 4K or high def or whatever that is. Right. And so, you know, you have these students coming up now that that's all they see. And to stand in front of an actual object and realize, oh yeah, this doesn't have light emanating from underneath it, uh, is, is a very different experience, very tactile experience. And Yeah, especially you know, when they're trying to make a painting oh, yeah. of that stuff that they're seeing online, but they mm-hmm. don't. You know, they're like, it's a totally different thing if you see that in person than oh, you're yeah. seeing it through a screen. Like, how do I get the transparency of the? You know, it's, like, <laughs> it's different. It is. <laughs> it is, and it's great because they they have this vast library at their fingertips, and the ones who seem to be really involved <clears throat> let themselves fall into these sort of wormholes of one thing leads to the next and get really deep in it. And just having that access is kind of incredible. Uh, but you got to get out there as well. Yeah, you got to see it thing. in person. Yeah. Cool. Well, um, I'm glad we made this happen. Me too. From Los Angeles to New York. <laughs> We've been talking about it for a little while. But yeah, it's true. And it's, uh, it's good to have you over. And um, I'm going to go check it out tomorrow. How long is the, the fair up? Through Sunday. Through Sunday? Yeah. I'm oh. leaving on Saturday. I need to go back and see it without a lot of people standing in there. But it, it looked good. Yeah, I was I was happy with the way it turned out. So, well, I'll try to get this up early Saturday so people can go check it. Otherwise, they can see you know they can get a the catalog from yeah. the gallery. Yeah. And do you have anything else coming up after that? Or a little time to. I have a little time yeah. to kind of hang back, and I'm I'm trying to figure out if I want to schedule another show in Los Angeles with uh, Grimes out there. Mm-hmm. And I've had two or three in the last two or three years, and uh, um, you know, it makes you wonder about putting out another group in this in the same context so I'm not I'm not sure what I'm doing in that regard but I have I'm in the throes of this time a moderate change in the work yeah. <laughs> thank God so I'm not just throwing the baby out with the bathwater again right. but 
So it's going to take me a little time to develop this. I'm actually, um, the, the screening that I do on top of those photographs is all oil paint, which is um, unorthodox yeah. and creates these sort of crazy surfaces. Um, but I've been working with white mostly, um, and the opacity of that works really well. But so I'm moving into now these kind of monochromatic color versions of these things, and it's going to take me a little while to figure out the viscosity and the you know the real sort of nuts and bolts. Well, those paintings they have a really a great legacy of like the the movement and the layering that you're mm -hmm. doing, so yeah. it comes across. Yeah, oh, that's good to hear. Well, maybe maybe you could do me a favor while you're fine tuning that new work. Let's get a two person show in Hawaii. <laughs> I need to get out of this weather. For a that bit. sounds perfect. Doesn't sound good. Yeah, I would love to do that. All right, cool. Sounds good. All right, thanks for coming over. All right, thanks for having me. It's fun. Sound and Vision was conceived, produced, recorded, edited, mastered, and facilitated by myself, Brian Alfred. You can find images that I take from the podcast sessions by going to the images page on the website soundandvisionpodcast.com. You can find even more images on the podcast Instagram feed at soundandvisionpodcast. If you love hearing these artists speak about their life and work, please support the podcast by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. It's also available on Stitcher and Google Play. You can even donate to help support the podcast by clicking the donate button on the webpage. The introduction and accompanying music was generously provided by Michael Lovett. Michael records as Nazca Lines and also Moonlights in the band Metronomy. The bio and outro music were provided by Sean Seymour. Sean and his wife Yoshimi are a band called Lullatone based in Nagoya, Japan. Thanks to them and also Jacob Tutu and Logan Takahashi who have also lent music to the podcast. Thanks to all the listeners who share and support the podcast. All this is done by myself without funding and ads and it really is you all who help spread the word and you spread it well. Many thanks to all of you and all the artists for sharing their stories and time with me.